tonight, we're going to continue on in our series that we've been in. This is the third week of our series. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name's Tom. I'm uh, the lead pastor here. My wife and I, Ebony, she's back with the kids. Oh, she's right there. Uh, we have the privilege of providing leadership to this church plant. Uh, and like I said, we're a church plant. That means we're brand new. So all of us are brand new. It's kind of a beautiful, cool season, new life. It's a lot of fun. So stoked that you're here. We are continuing on in this series that we've been in. This is the third week we've been going uh, through what the church is. And we've talked about how this is really important for us to define what the church is because if we're gonna actually plant a church, it's really important for us to know what the church is. And we talked about how we could look to all kinds of sources to define the church. We could look to um, American culture. We could look to um, secular culture. We could look, look, look even to Christian culture to define the church. But we, won't, we don't wanna do any of those things. We wanna look to the scriptures. What does the Bible tell us about what the church is? So that's kind of the heart behind this series because as we're planning this church, we all need to be on the same page of what it is that we're actually doing. What are we starting? What is, what is being birthed here? What is God doing? He's planning a church, okay? And if you were with us, uh, the first week we talked about how the church is the family of God. It's the overwhelming, uh, overwhelmingly strongest metaphor used in the scriptures, most frequently used metaphor in the scriptures to describe the church. It's a people that relate to God as Abba Father. And because we're his sons and daughters, we have this inheritance. And that inheritance is Jesus' perfect record, his perfect righteousness. And not only that, but because he's our father, that makes us brothers and sisters. We relate to each other in a very close way. And we talked about how the, the one another's of scripture how we love one another and serve one another and think more highly of one another and just the beautiful picture that we see in the New Testament church, really being the family of God. And then last week, our second week, we talked about the church as the body of Christ, where Jesus is the head of like the body, right? And the body's made up of many different members, many different parts, each of them contributing and receiving from the body. We talked about how the body of Christ is this interdependent community where everyone contributes and receives. It's a beautiful thing. But tonight, we're gonna to talk about another picture that we see in the scriptures. Tonight, we're gonna to talk about the church as the bride of Christ. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. Flip over to Ephesians chapter five. If you wanna use your Bible app, you're more than welcome to. Flip over to Ephesians chapter five. I'll be in the ESV translation. <clears throat> and while you're flipping there, uh, I want to start just kind of by telling you a, a short little story. I, uh, so my family and I, we spent the last uh, five to six years in San Diego planning the, church, the other restored churches down there. And it was such a rich season of life, man. Like, we love those people. We love that city. And it was cool. When we, uh, when we were looking for a place to live, we, were, we moved from here, from this valley, down to uptown San Diego. And... It, it, the real estate down there is crazy. It's like, it's really expensive, but God bless us with this tiny little apartment in Uptown, and we loved it. The kitchen, I'm not joking you, the kitchen was like the size of this like keyboard and, and, and computer. It was so small and so packed, it was out of control. Like you would walk in the front door and there'd be like the kitchen, the living room, and then like the bedrooms, and it was, it was so small, but we loved it. It was this, it was like the top floor, imagine with me, it was the top floor of like a two-story duplex, Okay, small little, small little apartment, but man, we loved it. And going up to our front door was this kind of, kind of older, like wooden uh, set of stairs. And 
and there was only one entrance into our, our apartment and it was from that, that set of stairs. So you can imagine, we have the entire f- floor of the, of the upstairs of this duplex and we have these stairs, right? So when we moved there, Amelia, my oldest, she's five now, she was probably, gosh, she was months old when we first moved there, right? So having kids on this kind of old rickety kind of wooden set of stairs going up, it's like wouldn't work. For like any parent who has young kids, you know, like stairs in general freak you out. So I remember like we would do Costco runs and we'd have like, you know what you do at Costco runs? Like you want to go once, you don't want to go like every other day. So you have like, you fill your, you fill your, your car with food and you're, and I remember like having to have, you know, Amelia in one hand and like do multiple trips to like our alley up the stairs. And it was just like this kind of like, ah, uh. but at the same time, that season of life, we really were so like thankful to have that apartment. It was really special to us. But I remember I'm like these stairs, like they're, they're getting older. Like they're, I remember being like, ah, there's, I, I just feel weird about these stairs. Like I, one, I don't want my kid playing them, but I felt weird about the stairs because I'm like, I, I, feel like, I feel like they're getting weaker. And if it's the only way up to my house. If those stairs aren't there, like we're in trouble. You know what I mean? We can't get into our house. And it turns out like that kind of feeling I had about it, we had termites in the stairs. So they had to come and replace them and like, and, and they demoed the stairs. And I remember looking up at like where my front door was and it's, you know, it's two stories off the ground and it's just a door. There's no, there's no way to get in. And I remember being like, these stairs are like, they're super important. These stairs are super important. But here's the thing. The reason I'm drawing your attention to these stairs is stairs can be a really helpful thing. Like they can get me inside my front door. They can, be, they can get you to places that you wouldn't normally be able to get to. They can, they can do things for you that you wouldn't normally be able to do, right? <clears throat> but here's the thing. Depending on their condition, they can actually be a source of like pain, I mean, forget about a toddler just going up on stairs. Like, if we hadn't caught the termites, imagine me coming out my front door and those stairs giving way. Like, that would be, a, that would be kind of a disaster. That would be painful. I don't want to fall from, like, you know, 15 feet in the air. That would, be, that would not be fun. So here's this idea that I want to bring your attention to. In the same way that those stairs really are kind of like a helpful thing, depending on their condition, they can also be a thing that can cause pain and hurt. And tonight we're going to be talking about these themes of marriage. And I think for a lot of us, marriage can actually be in a similar way. Man, I have, I've been blessed so richly in marriage. But I think marriage, I, don't want, I want to be sensitive to those of us where marriage has actually been a really painful thing. Like maybe it was mom and dad's marriage. Maybe it was a past marriage. Maybe it was, maybe it is the marriage that you're currently in. Or maybe it's a marriage that you long to be in. But either way, what I want to do before we jump into our time together is I want to just take a moment and I want to pray. And specifically, I want to pray that um, despite our experiences with marriage, each of us has one, despite our experiences with marriage, um, that we'd be able to see Jesus clearly tonight as we preach, okay, as we go through the scriptures. So what I want to do, I I just want to pray for us before we jump in, okay? Let's pray. Um, Father, thank you for your grace. Um, Thank you um, for your unending um, kindness to us. Uh, Thank you for the ways um, that you show your grace to me on a continual basis. Lord, I pray for each heart in the room that regardless of their experience with marriage um, or the marriages that they've come from, each of us have a mom and a dad, 
but either way, God, I pray that regardless of our experience, that we would be able to see Jesus clearly. So Spirit of God, open every single um, heart in this room to see you clearly. God, if anything that I say um, gets in the way of what you want to do with your people, shut me up. I really want to honor my friends. I really want to honor you. So just be with us tonight. God, encourage us. Help us to see your love clearly. In your holy name, Jesus, amen. Okay, so Ephesians chapter five, we're gonna read verses 25 through 32, okay? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, excuse me, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Sound familiar? Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, so for us to understand what it really truly means for the church to be the bride of Christ, we need to understand a few things about marriage. Three things specifically, okay? We need to, we're gonna focus in on these things. We need to understand the essence of marriage. If you're taking notes, write these down. <clears throat> we need to understand the essence of marriage. We need to understand the result of oneness, two becoming one, and we also need to understand the joy of exclusive intimacy, okay? The essence of marriage, the result of oneness, and the joy of exclusive intimacy. Let's jump in, the essence of marriage. Okay, so some of you guys have heard this, Genesis chapter one, the very, very first wedding ceremony, God creates Adam, right? And he goes, it's not good for man to be alone. Everything else that God creates, creates Adam and he goes, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm gonna make him a helper. So he makes Eve. Now here's the thing, ladies, when you hear this word helper, don't think that that's a slam. Okay, God describes himself as a helper in, this, in, in the scriptures. Basically, what he's saying is, this guy needs help. So I'm gonna create someone, I'm gonna create someone suitable for him to actually help him because he can't take care of himself. I mean, legitimately, you see it all throughout the scriptures, the spirit of God is, calls himself the helper. Jesus says, when I go to be with the Father, the Father's gonna send the helper, the Holy Spirit, because we need help, we're in need. So if anything, ladies, it kind of gives you the trump card, like, he needs help. So, <clears throat> yes, so it creates a, creates a helper suitable for Adam. And then God tells them, be fruitful and multiply. And then it says the two become one. Okay, so you have God, creates everything, creates man, creates woman, puts them in a garden. They're naked, they're unashamed. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. And the two become one flesh. I think our, our culture loves to pervert sexuality. I think um, it can be kind of a dirty thing, but I want you to see that before the fall, before sin enters creation, God is giving a beautiful gift to a husband and a wife. He's giving them sex in the context of marriage. It's a beautiful thing. It's a gift, okay? Now, moving forward, here's the thing. We can't fully understand biblical marriage without understanding what a covenant is, okay? Marriage is a covenant relationship, 
I've been a pastor, uh, gosh, for like a, over a decade now. And I've had the privilege of doing several, like performing several weddings. And I love to do weddings. Uh, there's something about it. I just, I really, really enjoy doing weddings. And one of the things that I do in every single wedding that I've ever performed, with the exception of, I think, one, is I love to read a specific quote that I'm gonna read to you right now because it, it so perfectly touches on what it is to, like what a covenant really is. So I'm gonna read you this quote. It's by this pastor um, in New York City. His name's Tim Keller. He wrote a fantastic book on marriage called The Meaning of Marriage. But I wanna read you this quote, okay? He says this, quote, a covenant is a relationship more loving and intimate than a merely legal relationship, yet more binding and enduring and accountable than a merely personal relationship. It's a stunning blend of law and love. It's a personal relationship made more loving and intimate because it's legal through voluntary, mutual, binding promises and vows to be loving and to be faithful no matter what the circumstances. Modern society doesn't really have a category for this. Modern society orders everything around the experiencing individual self and the happiness and fulfillment of the individual self. In modern society, two people will look at each other and say, I will be what I should be as long as and to the degree that you are what you should be. And if you're not, I'm out. But in a covenant, two people look at each other and say, I will be what I should be whether you are being what you should be or not. Therefore, it's scary to enter into a covenant. And it only works if both people agree to the terms. Both parties have to say, I will be what I should be even if you're not what you should be. If one party says that but one party does not, you have exploitation or even abuse. If both people are saying you are more important than me, the relationship is more important than my needs, I will be committed to your needs before my needs. I give you my independence. I give you a part of my freedom as a gift of love. If both people are saying that, then that is a far more fulfilling far more deep and profound, far more life-changing and rewarding relationship than a consumer relationship in, we, in which each side says, I will be in this as long as you're meeting my needs. Friends, do you see how a covenant relationship is unique and special? It's a different kind of thing. A covenant is I will be what I should be regardless of whether or not you are what you should be. That's like outrageous, that's crazy. It's amazing. So because marriage is a covenant, it's a covenant relationship, there's two things that have to be the foundation of any covenant. Okay, I wanna spend a couple, a couple minutes on just these things. The two things are this, forgiveness and repentance. Without forgiveness and repentance, you're not gonna have a covenant. It's not gonna, it's not gonna happen. So let's jump into forgiveness, okay? Without forgiveness, Think about this. Without forgiveness, a marriage is gonna last how long? Like 20 minutes? Because you have two rotten people that are, that are signing up to do life together and your disgustingness and her rottenness are gonna like smash into each other. Without forgiveness, that thing is gonna implode in like a half an hour, probably during the actual like reception, okay? These are, these are vital things. Now here's the thing. The Bible says that for a covenant to actually be upheld, <clears throat> the relationship, like to, be re to remain united, two things have to be present. Electing love, that's where forgiveness comes in, and repentance. 
electing love and repentance. Okay, so I wanna do something kind of fun. Can I pick on you two? Dakota and Tiffany, come here. Yeah, yeah, I totally was sizing you up. Come here. All I want you to do is I just want you to stand right here and right here. I I want you guys to meet Dakota and Tiffany. They're amazing people. Give them a hand, come on. Stand here. Pretend like pretend you're at the altar. You know, come on up. Oh, so you just you're good. You're good. Come on up. <clears throat> and you can do whatever. Just get comfortable because I'm just gonna kind of use you as a visual thing. I'm a visual learner, so this helps me. I'm not gonna make you guys do anything crazy. I'm not gonna make you guys answer any really embarrassing questions except for this one. <laughs> what is the deepest darkest sin of your life? Tell everyone. No, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. Yeah, you're like, oh gosh. Okay. So here's here's what we're gonna do. Okay. We're gonna do kind of like a, a hypothetical situation with these two, okay? Go ahead, you can face them, you don't have to face each other. <clears throat> okay, so last night, get this guys, last night, um, it was the first night of sleep that Tiffany's had in a long time where she wasn't like stressed or whatever. She, got, she, was, she was deep sleep, okay? And at two o'clock in the morning, she woke up because she had to use the restroom. So she goes into the restroom and she's kind of stumbling. She's like, I just can't wait to get back into bed, but I gotta pee, so I'm gonna pee quick. And she goes into the restroom and she goes to sit down and she falls about eight inches deeper because somebody left the toilet seat up. His name is Dakota, okay? So in that moment, we have the offended party and we have the offender, okay? Dakota left the toilet seat up, and Tiffany paid the consequences with a wet bottom, okay, at two o'clock in the morning. So here's the thing. I want to I use this as an illustration to describe forgiveness, electing love, and repentance, okay? Forgiveness is when Tiffany, the offended person, she puts her anger away. She has every right to be, like, ticked off, Okay? If you've ever done something like that or guys, you've ever stubbed your toe in the middle of the night where it interrupts your sleep and you just don't see it coming, it's the worst, okay? So you have every right to be upset, but she puts her anger away. She doesn't overlook the offense. She doesn't like pretend it really happened, it really hurt her, it really, it really hurt her feelings and it really, she really had to deal with the consequences, okay? But she covers it. She puts her anger away. She doesn't overlook the offense, but she covers it. And in fact, Tiffany decides that, you know what, she's gonna reach out and still put her love on Dakota. Give her love to him. <clears throat> she goes, like, I, no, the relationship is more important. Like, I want you. Like, I know what you've done. I'm not brushing under the rug. Like, it really did hurt me. <clears throat> I'm not pretending. I'm fully aware what you did wasn't cool but she still chooses to put her love on him. So she says, I put it behind me. I want you, I want your heart again. That's electing love. That's choosing to put your love on someone when they don't deserve it. It's not holding their past against them, but instead it's covering it with your love. You guys see this? You You guys picking up on this idea? That's what God does with us. God chooses his electing love. Now, on the other hand, there's the person who did the offending, okay? We have Dakota. He left the toilet seat up. His wife had to pay the price. 
This is the person who needs to repent in this, in this illustration, okay? <clears throat> Let's talk about repentance for just a moment and I'll let you guys sit down. Are you guys familiar with the story of the prodigal son? Luke 15, okay, I'll, I'll sum it up for you if you haven't heard it. Basically, you have this son and he goes to his dad and he goes, dad, I wish you were dead. Legitimately, it'd be better if you just died now, but since you're still alive, can I just have my inheritance now? Give me my inheritance now, I'll bounce. <clears throat> and the father, obviously, I mean, imagine, if you have kids, imagine how you'd feel if your kid's like, hey, I wish you were dead, give me, give me the stuff that I'm gonna get when you die. So the dad just goes, okay, gives his son his inheritance. So the son goes away, goes off to another city, and just kind of goes nuts. Spends all the money on wild living, right? So he's sex, drugs, rock and roll, prostitution, gambling, he goes crazy. And then he runs out of cash. And over time, he starts to get more and more desperate. And he finds himself at like a pig trough where pigs would feed and he's eating out of there because he's so hungry. And then he has this epiphany and he goes, when I was living in my dad's house, I at least had a meal. And the light bulb goes off for him. And he comes to his senses and he decides, I'm gonna go back to my father. I'm not gonna make any excuses. <clears throat> he goes back to his dad and he goes, dad, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. And he totally subjects himself to whatever the father decides. He puts himself into his father's hands, figuratively. He takes full responsibility. I've sinned against God, I've sinned against you. And he goes, I'll take whatever you can give me. Whatever your timing is, whatever you decide, whatever it looks like. He takes responsibility and submits to his father. I think, I think, I think repentance is so misunderstood. Even in church culture, repentance is not like explaining. Like in Dakota's situation, it, it would be, hey, you know what? I was just kind of tired and I wasn't, you know, I, I was having a long day and I was stressed out and then something happened and I had to rush out of the room so I didn't put the toilet seat down. Repentance is not explaining. <clears throat> One of the things I find myself like doing when, I, when I've wronged somebody else is oftentimes when I'm hungry, I turn into a jerk. So I'm like, hey, sorry, I was just being hangry. You guys know what hangry is? Yeah, when hunger and anger collide. <clears throat> so here's the thing. Repentance is not that. It's not like explaining it away. Repentance is not groveling. It's not like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, Tiffany. I'm so sorry for leaving the toilet seat up. That's not repentance. Reten repentance literally means turning the other way. So imagine if you're walking in a direction, repentance would be about face, 180 degrees the other way. No excuses, no defending, taking responsibility for your actions and how they affected the other person. The offended. As the offender, you take responsibility for your actions and how they affected the offended person. I'll take whatever you can give me in your time at your discretion. So imagine in that moment, Dakota realizes and goes, oh baby, I'm so sorry. I didn't even consider you. I didn't even consider what it would be like for you. I was careless, I was unloving, and I hate that I did that and I feel terrible about it. I hate how it affected you. But I want you to know, like I don't feel good about it, I hate that I did that, but I want you to know like I submit myself to you. I care more about our relationship and I understand that I've kind of breached trust, trust here. It might sound silly, but enough to worry like she's angry. 
I've, I know, I realize, I recognize I've breached trust here and I want you to know I'm willing to do whatever it takes in your timing to repair that trust. So I'll give you space if you need it. I totally understand that. But I just want you to know, like, I take responsibility. What I did was totally uncool. There's no excuse. That's repentance. So what I want you to see, and the reason I brought them up here is I think it's helpful, is we all have so much to learn about this and grow in this. But imagine what their, at least it's their marriage, their relationship, imagine what it would be like if both of them, if the offended party electing love forgiveness and put that on on the other person and the person who did the offending was quick to repent imagine how beautiful that would be for marriage marriage in general the essence of marriage the foundation of marriage at the core is grace it's the giving and receiving of grace are you guys tracking with this idea how important this is thanks guys so much for coming (laughs) give them a hand huh So the ongoing rhythm of grace, electing love and repentance. And the moment that each, that one of those things like kind of stops, marriage is in trouble because marriage is a covenant relationship. The moment there's a lack of electing love of forgiveness and repentance, if one of those goes away, you are in trouble. You have division now. Are you guys tracking with this? Not if you are. Come on. There we go. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, at the core of marriage is the giving and receiving of grace. Grace is the most powerful force in the universe. There's nothing stronger. <clears throat> grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is receiving love even when you are the offender. Marriage at its core is a relationship based on grace. So the church, we're talking about the church, okay? The church, the bride of Christ, relates to Jesus, relates to God on the basis of grace. That informs everything. That's how we relate to him. He's the offended party. And we relate to him in grace. It's beautiful. Okay, the second thing, the result of oneness. Um, If you survey the Bible, all throughout the Bible, you will see God using imagery of his people being the bride and God being the bridegroom, okay? Okay. What God is saying there is, I want to relate to my people not just as like a king relates to his subjects or not as just like a shepherd relates to his sheep or even not as like a creator relates to his creation. All those are true. They're beautiful things. But this imagery of a bride and a bridegroom, it means that God wants to relate to his people the way that a husband relates to his wife. That's kind of scandalous. Okay, do you remember in uh, the first wedding ceremony we talked about, Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply. The two shall become one flesh. That means sex and procreation. That's literally what it means. It's like the, the pinnacle of earthly intimacy and the result being things being birthed. Okay? <clears throat> if, if you ever read the, songs of, uh, the Song of Songs, it's in your Bible, it's like, very detailed graphic depictions of a husband and a wife and the beauty of their marital intimacy. It's in your Bible. If you haven't read it, you should try to read it without blushing. Okay, there's some, there's some, there's some crazy things in there. But it's, it, it's kind of weird. It's this idea of, of God wanting to relate to his people the way a husband relates to his wife. It's a passionate thing. 
So here's the deal. If you don't understand this reality, or I should say to the degree that you understand this reality, that God doesn't just wanna be your king or your creator, but your bridegroom, your spouse, like your intimate lover, to the degree that you understand that is to the degree that you'll actually understand sin. You'll never fully understand what sin is and what it does unless you understand this concept, okay? God doesn't just wanna be king. He doesn't just wanna be a king that you obey. He doesn't just wanna be a creator that you rely on. He wants to be your bridegroom. He wants you to love him the way that he loves you. So let's talk about this, this idea of what sin is and what it does. We're not gonna understand what sin is and what it does unless we can wrap our brains around this idea that God wants to relate to us the way a husband relates to a wife. Okay, sin. Simply put, sin is loving something more than God. And here's the thing. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross. He did that to pay the debt of the sin for God's people. Okay, so the cross is this big outing of us. The cross exposes like, hey, we're pretty jacked up people, okay? The cross, is, is, it outs us. It exposes us as the sinners that we really are at a heart level. It exposes the reality that it's true. We do love things more than God often. So much so that the perfect holy son of God had to come and die for it. It's a real thing. So the cross outs us. It shows, it's proof that we're guilty of loving things more than God. So how do you know? How do you know if you're loving things more than God? Here's the trick that I use. It really helps me a ton when I'm trying to kind of get a diagnosis of where my heart's at, just what's going on. Here's a trick I use. What do you dream about? Let's take some, let's take some heart inventory right now. What do you dream about? What do you fantasize about? Uh, lately, I've been finding myself fantasizing about well-behaved children. I know it sounds funny, but it's like a real thing. Like I'll be in the supermarket or something, we'll be together as a family, and like, like they just, they get like demonic. Like, so out of nowhere, like screaming, like Vivian will just like lose her mind, and Amelia's like, I want candy, and I want ice cream, and I'm like, guys, can we just like buy dinner at the grocery store and leave? Can we just do that? And they're like, no. It's like negotiating with terrorists. It doesn't work. Like, it's crazy. And this idea, like, I genuinely have found myself fantasizing about well-behaved children. But here's why I fantasize about well-behaved children. Because I want to control my environment so that it's comfortable for me. I don't want other people to think, like, lowly of me get your stuff together, bro. Like, can you not parent your kids or what? I find myself fantasizing about well-behaved children, not for their benefit, for mine. What do you dream about? What do you fantasize about? More money? More stuff? If I just had 10 grand a year more, oh, that would relieve so much pressure. What do, you, what do you dream about? Maybe you dream about a spouse. And let's just be real. Like just statistically, 90% of the room fantasizes about sex. I love watching some of you guys for looking around right now. 
How about this question? You know when you're bored and you just grab your phone because you're just like whatever, like I have downtime. Why do you grab your phone? What's motivating you? Like why do you do it? Count the likes on Instagram maybe? Shop? Dude, Amazon's on your phone now. You can literally click like two buttons and have anything come to your door. It's crazy. Here's another test for you and this one is big. Where do you spend your money most effortlessly? I'll go out thinking, just, yep, done. Like, I love it. Do it. I remember uh, when Ebony and I were dating, and guys, I was such a fool. Like, I effortless, effortlessly spent money on her. But I, but I did it so stupidly. Like, it was so ridiculous. Like, I bought her, like, a TV. Like, I worked a minimum wage job delivering pizza, and I was like, oh, I'm gonna shower this girl with gifts, like, totally bought her this expensive TV because I thought, dude, she's gonna love a TV. Like, I was so clueless. I mean, I worked and worked and worked to save up for it, but it was like, this is ridiculous. I bought her a video camera. Do you guys remember Circuit City? Like, yeah, I'm dating myself. It was like Best Buy. It was like an electronics store. I'd be like, oh, I'm gonna get this for Ebony. I'm gonna get this for Ebony. And like, and I spent money on her so effortlessly in stupid ways because I was totally clueless and I was loving her in a way that I thought would be cool, but it had nothing to do with her because I just wanted her approval. But I remember that season of life. I, I spent money on her so effortlessly. What is that for you now? What do you find yourself spending money on effortlessly? Here's a big question, man. If you really want to go deep, <laughs> deep down the rabbit trail, what do you want and why do you want it? I think so oftentimes we don't even ask ourselves these questions. We don't even get to the motive of our heart. And here's why, because it's gross. Because my motives are self-centered. My motives revolve around me. I am the sun in my universe. Everything revolves around me. Sin is loving something more than God. So here's the thing. Your answer to any of these questions we were just kind of going through silly in a silly way, your answer to any of these questions, they will reveal your true spiritual lover. Sin's not just breaking the rules, friends. It's spiritual adultery. It's giving yourself to another lover. Let's talk about the reality of what sin does, okay? If God is only a king, then when you sin, you're just breaking the rules. You're just breaking the law. But if God's your bridegroom, if, God, if God's your spiritual spouse, that means he's given you his heart. So when you sin, you're not just breaking the rules, you're breaking his heart. You're giving yourself to another lover. So my friends, what or who are you giving yourself to? Because the result of giving yourself to a spiritual lover is that fruit will be bared. Something will be birthed. <clears throat> Remember, Genesis 1, we talked about this. The two become one, be fruitful and multiply. My children are a result of the, the, the fruit of Ebony and I giving ourselves to each other. Check this out, Paul, in, in Romans chapter seven, if you have the verses back there, Colton, throw them up there. Romans chapter seven, Paul talks about this idea of bearing fruit, okay? 
Romans 7, verse one. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Verse two, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Skip to verse four. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. That word belong actually is directly correlated to marriage. So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. What this is saying is that all humans are like a woman, okay? And the lover that you give yourself to will bear fruit through you. Are you tracking with this imagery? Yeah? Nod, if you are. Say no if you're not. I need to, you need to get this. <clears throat> All humans are like a woman, and the lover you give yourself to will bear fruit through you. That's the result of the oneness, of the two becoming one, of giving yourself to a spiritual lover, is that fruit is bared. Something's birthed into the world. So what are you giving yourself to? What do you love more than Jesus? That's the lover. Something will be birthed. All right, let's talk about the fi- my final point here, the joy of exclusive intimacy. Now, we're talking about this idea of fruit being bared, of things being birthed. In Galatians chapter five, Paul really helps us out. He helps us see what the fruit is. Okay? what the fruit looks like of giving ourselves to other spiritual lovers, of loving things more than Jesus, and when we give ourselves to Jesus, what things get birthed, what fruit gets bared. Okay? Take a look at this. Galatians 5, starting in verse 19. This is, he's talking about the fruit that comes from spiritual adultery, from sin. Galatians 5, starting in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, This is the fruit, here it comes. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Anybody get angry in the room? Rivalries, dissensions, division, envy. Anybody ever find yourself envious of what other people have? drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in the very next verse, Paul tells us what's birthed as a result of intimate love with God. Check this out. You've heard this before if you've been around church for any any matter of time. Verse 22. But the fruit, what's birthed, what's bared, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. My friend, what's being birthed? What's being, what's being brought into the world through your life? That will tell you whether or not you're giving yourself to Jesus or to another lover. Listen, to be a Christian is to be Jesus' bride. Okay, I don't care if you're a guy or a girl. I know that sounds weird for the guys, but listen, it sounds weird for the girls when we talk about being sons of God. We inherit Jesus' righteousness. We have a sonship. That's gotta be weird for the ladies. Guys, get over it. Like, we're the bride of Christ. Men or women, it doesn't matter. 
But just like any marriage, it's one thing to be married and it's a whole nother thing to give birth. Okay, those are two different things, okay? It's one thing to be baptized. It's one thing to make a commitment to Jesus, beautiful, but it's another thing entirely to have an intimate relationship with him that bears fruit. Those are two different things. So I'll close with this. I'll call the band up. You guys can come on up. So we're talking about the joy. What's the joy of this exclusive intimacy? Take a moment and just imagine what it would be like if you and I, if we stopped giving ourselves to other spiritual lovers. What would that look like? Imagine if we gave ourselves exclusively to Jesus. Imagine the fruit, friends. Imagine what it would actually look like practically. Imagine the effect that it would have on everything around us. Revelation chapter 19, it describes heaven. It describes heaven as a party. But not just any party. It defines heaven as like a wedding party, a wedding feast. There's a bride and she's dressed in white. You guys know why brides wear white on their wedding day, right? It comes from the scriptures. The white, it's a symbol. It symbolizes purity and being blameless. No imperfections. Holiness. It's a beautiful thing. There's no perfect brides. But this white, this wearing a white dress, it's a picture of what's happening in the scriptures. So you have this bride dressed in white and you have a groom described as the lamb. The lamb who was slain, the lamb of God. It's Jesus. It's Jesus the bridegroom the lamb of God. And it's the blood of that sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, that covers the sins of his bride. Guys, Jesus is passionate about his girl. Way more passionate than I am about my wife. I love her. I love her so much. I don't love anybody more than I love her but Jesus loves his wife. He loves his bride. A couple chapters later in Revelation, the apostle John, who who wrote the book, he describes his vision of heaven. He says this in Revelation 21, in verse one, he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. He says that there's this, a new reality that replaces an old reality. Keep reading. And the sea was no more. Verse two. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, 
adorned for her husband. Friends, John is describing an entire city where nothing but good fruit is being birthed, is being bared. It's holy. Imagine a city like that. I mean, picture it in your mind. Imagine a city. All the people, all the art, all the food, all the interaction, all the relationships, everything absolutely perfect. Everything holy. And do you see what we just read? Do you see the the wedding imagery in this? We see the city, these people, Jesus' bride walking down the aisle. Let's keep reading in verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things, the bad fruit, for the former things have passed away And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. That's the consummation of the wedding between Jesus and his bride, the church. Friends, there will be a day when the church's spiritual intimacy is exclusively with Jesus. Where the church is completely faithful to him. Where there are no other lovers And the result, oh, the result will be a reality that is birthed from that intimacy that is so beautiful that it makes the most amazing earthly marriage, the most amazing earthly intimacy, the most amazing earthly sex pale in comparison. And not only that, but imagine what it's gonna be like. Like as that intimacy compounds over all eternity, as it increases, and it increases, and there's nothing there to slow it down. There's no bad fruit. Imagine as that, in, that, that intimacy compounds, it increases and increases and it builds and it builds and it's never ceasing, it's never ending, it's forever. Imagine how that compounds. Heaven is not like playing a harp in the clouds. Are you getting this picture? It's oneness with Jesus and the result of that is spiritual fruit that permeates all of creation and redeems everything. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be right now. Just read the news for 30 seconds. It's because we give ourselves to other lovers. And I'm just as guilty. I need the grace of God just as much as you do. But friends, the church is the bride of Christ. It's the people that Jesus passionately loves. And it's the people that Jesus bears spiritual fruit through. That's what the church is. It's people that Jesus passionately loves and bears spiritual fruit through. Friends, there are no other lovers that can compare to Jesus because only Jesus gives his blood. 
Only Jesus truly lays his life down for his bride. He's the true lover of your soul. He proved it on the cross. That was him demonstrating his passionate love for you. It's not just words, it's actions. Jesus willingly laid down his life to cover your sin, to clothe you with the white dress of his righteousness. Do you see this? Are you hearing me? Spirit of God, give us eyes and ears to hear you. Friend, do you know his love today in this moment? Do you know it? Because he desires you. He's the bridegroom. He wants you. Some of you feel unwanted. Jesus wants you. He desires you. Let me pray for us. Spirit of God, help us right now. You are the helper. So I appeal to you in your character. I appeal to you in your character that you would help right now. Help us to see the love of Jesus for us, the intimate, passionate, unrelenting love of Jesus. Help us. He was glad to go before us, glad to willingly lay down his life for his bride. I pray for every single person in the room that they would receive his love, myself included. I wanna receive more of your love, Jesus. God, we're planting a church. You're assembling a church. You're doing this. We're not, we're not starting a gathering. We're not planting a gathering. We're not planting an event. We're not planting things to do. No. Jesus, we are the bride. We are people that you passionately love and people that you bear your spiritual fruit through. And I thank you, God, for your grace. Your electing love, you choose to put your love on us even as we reject you, even as we put ourselves in the arms of another lover. You're still beckoning us to yourself. You're calling us, come back, come back, come back. The fruit of that's gonna hurt you and it's gonna hurt the world. Come back. And my prayer for each of us, God, is that tonight we would just enjoy you. We wouldn't feel condemned by our sin. You covered it. Your blood was spilled. The cross is done. You said it is finished. So let us be men and women who don't sulk. Let us be men and women who celebrate the reality of your unending love for us that covers our sin and that frees us and transforms us. God, we want intimacy with you. I don't care how scandalous that sounds. I want intimacy with you. I want you to bear spiritual fruit through my life in such a way that it blesses those around me and provides me with the greatest joy. Oh, Jesus, have your way, please. We love you so much, God. Be with us in your holy and beautiful name.